Oh, so this is how it is. Eso lo que es. Puedo hacerlo en Spanish. Claro, pues, but I'll stick to what I know since the market's such a mess. Stocks are on thin ice, putting us to the test. Inflections, corrections, reversals, and rejections. Liquidity's drying up. No more Fed injections. The easy money's gone. Ya se fue el dinero. I slip back into Spanish. Donde está mi monero? Rates are on the rise. That's pushing up the dollar. Inflation's everywhere. If you feel it, holler at your boy. I'm right here with you. Feeling the uncertainty. Wondering what to do. Wait out this cycle, pray for stocks to rise, or buy the damn dips. Hoping we won't get surprised by another wave of selling. Mass capitulation. Selling into weakness, the ultimate damnation. Or maybe we just kick it, olvidemos this stress. Montemos el tren, escuchemos el express. Bienvenidos a bordo and welcome aboard, but mind the chop. Markets are choppier than a barbershop right now, and all major U.S. stock indexes experienced wild outside swings last week, especially the Dow Jones Industrials, which made up a more than 1,000-point intraday deficit last Monday for the first time ever to close in positive territory. The S&P 500 posted an intraday range of at least 2.25% every day last week, according to Bespoke. Keep in mind, the benchmark index stayed in a 1% trading range for over a year until the recent turbulence. The Nasdaq continues to be in the red zone, down 15% from its all-time high set about a month ago. The Russell 2000, the home of the small cap benchmark, is in a bear market down around 20% from its intraday record. The VIX, or Volatility Index, or Fear Index, hit its highest level since October of 2020. Yeah, that kind of volatile. On Friday, the S&P 500 surged to its biggest rally since June of 2020, and the NASDAQ 100 climbed more than 3% on the back of Apple's blockbuster quarterly earnings report. The iPhone maker rung up $123.9 billion in sales last quarter and says those supply chain issues? Not such a big deal. Both Apple and Microsoft reported robust earnings and pretty optimistic outlooks last week. And as they go, so go the markets. At least that's the way it's been working for the past few years. But investors have been losing their conviction. Currently, 32% of the S&P 500 is down 20% or more, and nearly 70% of stocks are off their highs by at least 10%. That's a correction. And traders remain bearish, trying to hedge on smaller and smaller declines. Heading into the weekend, there had never been more put options traded on U.S. exchanges. Protective put volume was more than 100% higher than the average of the past 200 days. Remember, put options are bets that a security or index is headed lower in the near future. While corporate earnings may be slowing, they're still pretty strong. In fact, analysts have raised their 2022 profit estimates by roughly $1 for the S&P 500. About 80% of companies that have reported earnings so far this season have beaten projections. They tend to do that. While S&P 500 profits were estimated to expand 22% in the fourth quarter, half the rate seen in the previous period, that's still more than twice as fast as the 10-year average, according to Bloomberg Intelligence. American companies, especially the big ones, are in excellent financial shape. Companies in the S&P 500 had about $2.4 trillion in cash and short-term securities on their balance sheets at the end of the third quarter of 2021, compared with $1.6 trillion at the same time in 2019. Alphabet had $142 billion going into the final quarter of 2021. Microsoft had about $131 billion, but spent around half of that on Activision. And Amazon had $79 billion. Maybe it should buy Robinhood, which has seen its market cap shrink from about $50 billion to around $10 billion in just the past year. The rich keep getting richer. But monetary policy is tightening. The problem is, investors don't know by how much or for how long. 
Hopes that we might have learned that in last week's FOMC meeting were kind of dashed when Fed Chair Powell gave a press conference after the Fed meeting on Wednesday. He said all the right things with the right temperament, except a couple of key items that didn't sit right with investors. Number one, inflation. It's running hotter and lasting longer than the Fed thought it might. Number two, rate hikes. We went into last year thinking we might see three. One month later, and the Fed is indicating as many as five rate hikes this year. How much and when they will come remains a mystery. Number three, shrinking the Fed's balance sheet. It stands today at $8.9 trillion, more than double where it was before the pandemic. Chair Powell indicated that the Fed would like to bring it back down to size, which means the Fed will go from being a buyer of government securities to a seller. And there goes the buyer of last resort for U.S. government bonds and the safety net that has made it safe for investors to walk the tightrope of one record high after the other in the U.S. stock market. The inevitability of higher rates has not only done a number on the stock market, especially small caps and biotechs, but it has roiled the junk bond market. New sales of high-yield bonds have dropped by 45% from last year's pace. The easy money has left the building. Happy Chinese New Year, everyone, and say goodbye to the ox and hello to the tiger. I the tiger, man. I the tiger, come on. The great Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed in Rocky III. The Chinese economy could use some of that fighting spirit as growth has been slowing for the world's second largest economy. China has grown at an average rate of nearly 9% per year since the turn of the century with the exception of 2020. It was one of the first major economies to exceed its pre-pandemic size, the first country in and the first country to recover from a GDP standpoint. But in the last year, China's growth is sputtering as it faces three major pressures. Muted consumer spending and supply disruptions as the country remains on a zero COVID-19 policy, stifling regulations leading to a weakening economic expansion, and a structural slowdown in the property sector. You remember Evergrande, China's biggest property lender, which has been on the brink of default for months. Not a lot has changed in that troubled sector. As the U.S. and Canada plan to raise interest rates, China has started cutting them again. Keep an eye out east for what that does to China's economy and its stock markets. The MSCI China index is down 38% from its highs set in February of 2021. And here's a stat that made me look twice and then made me want to put my phone away for the rest of the day. Four hours and 23 minutes. That's how much time Americans spend on their smartphones every day. In 2010, we spent 24 minutes on our phones. That's 3% of our waking hours. Today's smartphone usage consumes one-third of our waking hours. Put it down and grab a book or meditate after you listen to this podcast, of course. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's another make-or-break week for corporate earnings. Amazon will release quarterly results on Thursday, and the company is expected to report nearly 10% higher revenues from 2020. Alphabet is also expected to report strong growth driven by Google and YouTube ads as digital advertising has made a furious comeback. You've noticed those ads, right, given all the time we're spending on our phones? Facebook owner Meta Platforms will report results on Wednesday with a new financial reporting structure promising more details on its, quote, family of apps segment, including Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp, as well as its Reality Labs segment encompassing Meta's augmented and virtual reality hardware, software, and content. It's also a big week for reports on the labor economy here in the United States. On Wednesday, ADP will release its National Employment Report, often considered to be a preview for the Labor Department's more detailed non-farm payrolls report, which will be released on Friday. ADP is expected to report 208,000 private jobs were added in January. 
That's a steep drop from December's 807,000 jobs as holiday hiring wound down. On Friday, the Labor Department will release its non-farm payrolls report, or the jobs report as we call it around here, for the month of January. The consensus estimate is for gains of about 250,000 jobs. That's up slightly from the 211,000 jobs added in December. Remember, unemployment in the U.S. stands at 3.9%, which is within the range of what the Federal Reserve considers to be, quote, full employment. But there are still more than 3 million jobs missing from before the pandemic. The quits rate is near all-time highs, so where did all the workers go? It's also a huge week for the energy market. We spoke about the situation in Ukraine, which mostly impacts natural gas, but oil prices have been dancing around $90 a barrel for the past several weeks. The OPEC Plus Group meets on February 2nd, and it's likely to stick to its plan to raise output by 400,000 barrels a day in monthly increments. On the demand side of the equation... Crude oil imports in China are forecast to increase by as much as 7% this year. Oil prices ran up to their highest levels in over seven years on Friday as geopolitical turmoil continues to bubble under the surface. Investors have not felt a chill in the markets like the one we're experiencing since, well, March of 2020, and that was not a pleasant experience. A reckoning has hit the U.S. equity markets as risk is off the table and the fear trade is firmly in place. For most long-term investors, the recipe has stayed the same. Ride the waves of volatility, don't bail out on your portfolio, and hope this correction corrects itself. But somehow, this shakeup feels a little bit different and staying the course seems even harder than ever. We need some expert advice right about now and some perspective. We also need some more New Mexico in our lives. We always do. That's why I'm calling Anastasia Amoroso. She is a managing director and the chief investment strategist for iCapital and a voice of calm amid the fear we are all feeling. Welcome to The Express. Hi, Caleb. Good to see you. First of all, I got to know, since I'm a New Mexican too, red or green on your enchiladas or are we Christmas? We're Christmas, which for most people, they probably don't know what it is, but it is mixed. Christmas and uh, probably more green chili fan than red chili. A little leaning into the green. I like that. I'm Christmas too. All right. Anastasia, investors hate uncertainty. It's kryptonite for us, but we're swimming in it right now. The Fed met last week, and instead of calming the waters, Fed Chair Powell's comments added even a little bit more uncertainty to some. What did you hear or what didn't you hear that may be contributing to the confusion? Well, I think what the Fed Chair did is he did contribute a lot of lack of clarity, a lot of confusion, and frankly, it feels like the Fed themselves are not exactly sure what direction the policy is going. They're not exactly sure how many rate hikes there's going to be on the table. They're not exactly sure if it's going to be at every meeting. They're not exactly sure if there's going to be 50 basis points in March. And the list kind of goes on. So the Fed is in sort of this calibration process of figuring out what exactly the path of policy will be. And Caleb, as you said, the markets hate uncertainty. So that's why we've seen this pretty bad turnaround in the markets after uh, Fed Chair Powell spoke. Now, I will say that I don't think this period of uncertainty is going to last for the rest of the year. Let's say I think at some point, and maybe it's the March meeting, they will have figured out what the path of policy should be. And I think if they were to tell us that they're going to hike rates at every meeting, that could actually be okay too. Because let's keep things in perspective. The real rate today is deeply negative. The core inflation is running at four, four and a half percent. So the real rate is deeply negative. If they were to hike by even 250 basis points, that would just get a back to neutral rate for the economy. So that would not have been tightening just yet. So I think once we know where the path is, once we know where the sequencing is, 
I do think that the markets can find their footing. It's okay for them not to know we're in a really confusing time. This is the other side of the V-shaped recovery, aggressive growth. We just had the GDP print, some of the fastest growth we've seen in 40 years. Also, inflation at a 40-year high. So it's okay. But the Fed has been very transparent and pretty clear. I thought up until recently, and then when you heard those words, there's plenty of room for rate hikes, that kind of turned that meeting around. And I think it contributed to the uncertainty. So the Fed's job, though, as you know, and they say it all the time, its dual mandate is not really to worry about the stock market. Its dual mandate is maximum employment, 3 to 4% unemployment, and reasonable inflation, something between 2 and 3%. But the wealth effect, Anastasia, where investors and asset owners spend more if their assets are growing, that feels like it's in jeopardy right now. And we're feeling it in consumer sentiment. Is that a fear we should worry about? Or is that something that's just going to go away as soon as we get to some level of normalcy? Well, I do think the Fed needs to keep it in perspective and they need to keep it in the background of their decision making. And it was a little bit puzzling, Caleb, that that did not come across that given the drawdown that we had in certain stocks. I mean, some stocks are down 50, 60, 70 percent. And that didn't seem to unnerve the Fed whatsoever. I think there's a couple of reasons why that is. The main one is that we have not really seen any sort of material credit stress creeping through any parts of the market. So yes, certain stocks are down. And I think you could argue that we needed to see a valuation shakeout in those stocks. So in fact, the Fed might actually be happy with that from the macro prudential standpoint. But what they're also happy with is you saw some credit spread widening in parts of the market, but you didn't see that significantly. So If you look at the overall financials conditions indicator, it is not tightened significantly. So that's why the Fed is not worried about it. Now, I will also say, just like there's room to raise interest rates, as Powell pointed out, I think there's room for the net worth effect to have a little bit of leeway here. And I say this because household net worth in the United States is 25% above where it was pre-pandemic. So you know, if the average 60-40 portfolio is down 7% or so year to date, we can probably absorb this. And the last thing I'll say to that is, I do think that what we're experiencing today is a period in time, a period in 2022, but it doesn't mean that's what's going to happen for the rest of the year. And we have the uncertainty from the Fed, we have the uncertainty for the supply chains, but you know what's really happening is there's a lot of core market structure dynamics that are at play right now. If you look at liquidity and what the dealers are willing to offer, that liquidity has dried up. I mean, it is as bad as we've seen it in April of 2020. And at the same time, you had a lot of positions that got extended and they needed to be sold. They needed to be liquidated. So everybody from hedge funds to commodity trading advisors to volatility targeted funds to just you know regular investors, they've been behind this tide of selling pressure. So you got bad liquidity, a ton of selling pressure. So what's going to happen is going to exacerbate the moves to the downside. So I think that's what's been happening as well. And you had one buyer that is typically the largest buyer in the market that's been missing, which is the corporates. So the corporates should come back once the earnings seasons come down. So I think we might see a pretty different February than we did January. Right. And these things come in waves and they come in phases. And this, again, is the result of kind of where we've been. A lot of money poured into the system. You mentioned it's not a liquidity crisis and that households are doing just fine, right? We've had a rise in asset prices. So we also had a lot of government distribution in the form of stimulus checks and others. So households, personal income, all of that is in decent shape. This is no 2007, 2008. At the same time, investors who've been in this market 10, 12 years, they've never felt this before. And you mentioned it, but a lot of errors come out of the tech sector, meme stocks, crypto, and everywhere else risk is really in play. Are we oversold in those areas? 
Or do you think they could fall further? I think we found what's close to a floor level in some of those names. And it's really interesting, even though this was a very volatile week and you've seen a lot of downside uh, during parts of it, what's actually interesting is the software stocks and part of the technology sector has done quite well. I was just looking at the numbers and the software sector is up 2% week to date. And energy is the only sector that's, uh, that's leading it. So I do think the amount of valuation reset that we've had in the tech sector and the amount of outflows that we had from the tech sector has made it for a much cleaner slate, a much cleaner starting point. And that's why, you know, while the rest of the stocks are still kind of experiencing this adjustment, I think the bulk of that valuation adjustment has been done in the tech space. Now, I would be somewhat careful about what parts of the tech sector I would be looking to is you probably don't want to go into the highest flying and the highest multiple stocks still, but you want to go in reasonably valued stocks where you have confidence and visibility of cash flow. And so when I think about secular trends like cloud computing, for example, or maybe it's even metaverse investing or artificial intelligence, I think a lot of the software companies that are riding that tide, and we've seen Microsoft report very strongly this last week, I think a lot of those companies are going to be well positioned and their valuations have reset a lot lower. So I would be comfortable adding two select names there with a 12-month time horizon. Yeah, you need that time horizon. It's not like things are going to pop right back to where they were. That was an unusual time. Your 2022 outlook, which folks, you should take a look at on iCapital, you recently published, it's calling for a 10% rise in the S&P 500. We're down about 7-ish percent for the years. We hit the end of January. Are you saying 10% from 2021 close or from here? Well, the, the initial estimate was 10% from 2021 close. And I will admit that 10% was probably always going to be on the higher end because the reason why 10% seems reasonable as a starting point is because that's what the earnings growth for the S&P 500 is projected this year. And we feel strongly and confident about that. But the wild card in this 10% outlook is what's going to happen to the multiples. And well, we got the answer in January, what happened to those multiples, they reset significantly, uh, significantly lower. Now, having said that, if we look at the last three or four rate hiking cycles, we typically see some downdraft in multiples, but it's actually not that much. What happens more often than not is multiples do not expand, of course, when the Fed starts hiking interest rates. So, but what we got this year so far on top of it is we got a multiple contraction exacerbated by poor market liquidity. So 10%, I think, is the best case scenario for full 2022. And I think we're probably looking below that given the starting point that we we had this year. So, Caleb, the broader point of the outlook was that, you know, if we get to 10%, and by the way, 10% is not bad. The challenge is that's, let's say for a lot of the investors, that's the 60% of their holdings, they allocate to equities, and let's say they allocate to the S&P. The 40% that are allocated to fixed income, well, that 40% would have been down close to 2% last year. This year, if you look at the performance of fixed income, everything across the board is down except for leveraged loans. So once again, for a blended 60-40 portfolio, it could be a pretty benign outlook in terms of returns. And that's what we wrote about in the outlook is when inflation is still running at 4 or 5%, you have to deliver at least that much in order to make forward progress on your portfolio. And given our expectations for a blended 60-40, I mean, we might just get to 5% best case scenario. So we do look for other things to do to supplement that. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of investors, look, we've been so heavy into the equity market and into growth for the past 
10 years or so, very low interest rates. You have this productivity coming from these technology companies. You have these two, $3 trillion companies leading the market in Microsoft and Apple, Tesla joining that, obviously. But there is a lot of retail money in the market. So many investors joined the stock market just in the last year, two years, but really over the last several years, because as we say in this business, Tina, right? There is no alternative. There has been no alternative. With the amount of money in the market and sort of passively invested through 401ks and whatnot in the S&P, is there a, a level that sets itself because investors are just so heavily in it that is their biggest asset in some cases if they don't own a home that the market does have a threshold? Well, there is no alternative. That was definitely the motto of last year. And I think this year, investors, as they survey their allocations, we can't count on the same winners that were the winners in 2021 to be the winners this year as well. And specifically what I'm talking about, and for example, the pandemic trade, I think we all hope the pandemic trade is over. We all hope that we can put that behind us in 2022. And so it's not going to be as easy as buying the Pelotons and Zooms and some of those other names. So we have to put that aside. Then you've got the reopening trade. And I do think there's more legs to the reopening trade, like the airlines, for example. But you know what? Parts of the reopening trades are not cheap. If you look at certain spaces in like hotels, for example, the multiples have adjusted higher. So that's not quite as easy to do uh, to do either. You've got semiconductor demand that's still solid, but it's likely to step down. So as I survey the market or even financial, they had a blockbuster year last year, but that was in the back of strong M&A and IPO volumes. That may not be repeatable this year. So, so the bottom line is that as a lot of these investors who are quite overweight U.S. stocks and you know were overweight tech, I think they're going to look for other areas of return. And one of the things that we are thinking about, how do we supplement the more lackluster returns of the S&P that we expect? And we do look to the private markets and we look to the venture capital space that historically has delivered close to 700 basis points of outperformance versus the public markets. Yeah, it's, been, it's a good year to be in venture capital or even PE, blockbuster a year and a half, two years in those markets. And you do mention six ideas for potential hypergrowth. We're not going to get into all of them, but I am going to list them. And folks, do check out Anastasia's blog on iCapital. Venture capital, you talked about it. The crypto ecosystem, private credit, real assets, including real estate infrastructure and farmland, hedge fund arbitrage strategies, and the premium now on put options could make selling those options attractive. So these are some, I would say, slightly more advanced ways for investing for kind of retail investors who are just scared enough buying stocks. How are you counseling individual investors given all that, given the volatility when they're looking at some of these ideas and going, that seems a little exotic for me? Well, it can be a little bit exotic because you're right that typically investors have not trafficked in some of these ideas that have been reserved for the institutional space. But more and more, um, we believe that it shouldn't just be the institutions who benefit from this expanded toolkit of enhanced returns in VC, for example, or additional, um, you know, uncorrelated source of return uh, like you have in some of the hedge fund strategies. So more and more, some of these tools are accessible to non-institutional investors. But you're right, Caleb, there's a a fair degree of education that's needed. So the, the way that I would characterize why do some of those ideas make sense is, in order to beat this higher hurdle rate that we now have in the portfolio of higher inflation, there's two types of ideas that we need, which is how can I get hyper growth into the portfolio that could outperform the S&P? And this is, and typically what happens, if a company is growing at a pace that's higher than the S&P, 
multiples notwithstanding, over time, that company could actually outperform. And so that's why we look to the venture capital space. And speaking to, of, of hyper growth, for example, while the S&P revenues normally track in line with GDP growth, maybe a little bit more, you can find companies that are VC-backed companies that are growing revenues 30, 40, 50, 60%. And so you can imagine the return potential for those is much higher than that. And then the other types of categories that you need, which, which is the bucket of inflation and rate shock absorbers. So that's what we need to get into the portfolio. Well, how do you do that? Well, you might want to allocate to floating rate structures, which you can find in the public markets like leveraged loans, but the spreads have compressed there too. So if you look at something like private credit that offers you a floating rate plus a spread of 500 to 800 basis points over, that's a pretty strong return stream to potentially absorb some of the volatility. So I would say that second bucket is really designed to be a placeholder for cash flow in your portfolio, because if we're going to have this volatile environment of gives and takes this whole year, then we need to have something uh, that is working when certain other things are not in cash flow, uh, whether it's private credit or real estate cash flow could be one of the things that works well in this environment. All right. I'm going to put two scenarios at you because we have listeners from all ages uh, on the Express and readers in all ages on Investopedia. But for 20 to 30 year olds with that really long term investing horizon, how would you approach the U.S. stock market right now? I think you have a very op- in- interesting investment opportunity in the U.S. stock market right now. So what I would say, there's a, there's a two-pronged approach that I would deploy in the stock market right now. The first one, when things are not working, make sure you get something in the portfolio that is working. And so that's the cash flow that I talked about. And you can find that in private credit. You can find it in real estate. You can also find it in public markets as well. So focusing on dividend-paying companies that give you 3 4% cash flow while you wait for the markets to stabilize, I think that's an important part of the barbell approach to the portfolio. The second thing I would do is be a contrarian investor when it comes to things like technology and innovation. That is on sale right now. And no, I'm not saying that we need to buy the most high multiple high-flying companies with you know no earnings visibility, but you have so many great opportunities in the software space right now, in the semiconductor space, where valuations have reset materially lower but where you have revenues that are still projected to grow is 27% over and above the S&P 500 in the next 12 12 months. So I would be constructing a shopping list, some of the top names, reasonably priced, cash flow visibility that you have a strong conviction in. Let's flip the script. And let's say you're a 60 to 70 year old nearing or at retirement. What's your best advice for investing right now? My best advice is that it is not too late for rotation opportunities within the portfolio. Because if you think about a portfolio of somebody who's at close to retirement age, it is most likely more heavily skewed towards fixed income. And so as much time as we spend on the 60% of the portfolio, we need to spend time on the 40% of the portfolio that is in fixed income. And if you have a fixed income portfolio, you probably have a lot of treasury exposure. You might have some corporate bond exposure, but either way, that is fixed coupon, fixed income, which is going to struggle in a rising rate environment. So it is not too late to add floating rate structures to the portfolio. And as I mentioned, there's a number of ways to do that. Um, There is public market equivalents like leverage loans, for example. There's private credit, which is a floating rate structure, uh, but again, with with higher yield opportunities. And there's also uh, yield in real estate that could be thought of as this diversified enhanced fixed income option. So real estate, for example, 
that may not outperform the stock market this year. That may not outperform you know, technology stocks, but it is going to give you yield that also has the inflation pass-throughs. So that would be my focus for that cohort of investors because really rate and inflation shock absorbers for a more fixed income skewed portfolio are top of mind. What's your hot take for 2022? What are folks not talking about that they need to think about? Or what do you think could happen here out of out of nowhere that, that that's important to focus on? Well, given the amount of uncertainty and volatility that we talked about, maybe I'll, um, I'll go with something a little bit more positive <laughs> that people are not now talking about. It was all about COVID. It was all about Omicron. It was all about the pandemic. And in the last month or so, we've barely talked about is because there's been so much focus on Fed policy. I think this is the year, we're all hopeful, that this pandemic finally shifts to the endemic status. And with that, there is a return to the new normal. And if you think about why that should occur, why should that be the case? Between the vaccination rates across many different economies and the vaccination rates that will rise in emerging markets, and just the natural immunity that we have acquired... A lot of us globally, but certainly developed markets, have a rather high level of immunity. So I think this is the year where we will return more fully to the offices, where we will resume activities. And this is why this is the year that the Fed should also normalize the policy. So as the economy exits from the pandemic, it only makes sense that uh, the Fed also exits from its pandemic measures as well. I hope you're right on all that. It'd be great to see what normalization looks like from a monetary policy standpoint. It feels like we haven't had that for a very long time, but hopefully we'll all stay healthy and it'll be a better year and we'll have a new, new normal. I remember the new normal from the last great financial crisis. This is time for a new, new normal. Last question for you, Anastasia. We're a site built on our investing terms. Everybody knows that. You've been in this game quite a while. What's your favorite investing term and why? What's the one that just rings true and just makes your heart sing? I will give you an investment formula. How's that? I'll take that. We love formulas here at Investopedia. <laughs> That's right. My very simple investment formula, which by the way, can be applied to a bullish or bearish scenario is valuation plus positioning plus a catalyst. Amidst all the noise out there and amidst all the headlines, that's the formula that I always come back to. It is, where's the level of valuation today? Is it a compelling entry point or is it off the charts like we talked about in the software sector? Then you look at the positioning. Is everybody crowded in the same trade or is the tech sector that's been sold and unloved and thrown out like a baby with bathwater? So you can guess where we are today. And the third point is valuations, positioning kind of help us gauge the setup, but you ultimately need a catalyst. Will you have a catalyst to dislodge the expensive valuations or will you have a catalyst to buy cheap stocks? And I think today, as we talked about, this might be the year we get out of the pandemic. And so there's going to be this rotation. But as we emerge on the other side of the new normal, there's going to be growth that's going to be a little bit slower than it was before. So I think a lot of investors will once again look to pockets of secular growth, which is going to be in technology and innovation. So that's the investment formula that has served me pretty well over the years. I love that. It's simple. Nothing is that simple, but it's very simple. And I think something we can all look at, no matter what market you're looking at, if you're in a volatile time or even in a, in a sort of quasi-quieter market, that's a very good formula. I think we need to put that on Investopedia and name it after you. That's why we called you on here, Anastasia. Anastasia Amorosa, the chief investment strategist at iCapital, such a voice of good common sense. Find her on CNBC. You're a contributor there. Read the blog and follow her work with iCapital. It's such a pleasure to have you on The Express. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Caleb. 
It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes from Deepak in Boston, who suggests bellwether, and we like that term given Apple's blowout earnings report last week. Well, according to my favorite website, a bellwether is a leading indicator of an economic trend. To investors, a bellwether is usually a company that is worth watching closely because its earnings logically suggest a larger economic trend. A company's stock may also be a bellwether if it's viewed to be pointing towards an upward or downward trend in a sector. FedEx is often considered a bellwether for the global economy because it handles a good chunk of the movement of goods for businesses. But we can't deny that Apple has become a bellwether for the U.S. stock market given the staggering amount of sales it generates, its $2.8 trillion market capitalization, and how widely held it is across mutual funds, index funds, hedge funds, pension funds, and ETFs. Apple and Microsoft are the two largest U.S. public companies and the two most widely held stocks in the world. As I said at the top, as they go, so goes the stock market. They are bellwethers. Great suggestion, Deepak. Socks for you, my friend, and we'd like to see a picture of you sporting those on your next trip over to the North End for a bowl of wicked hot clam chowder and a lobster roll. We're going to let the Fed chair take us out this week. Like I said earlier, words matter, especially if you are the chair of the central bank of the largest economy on the planet. And Powell's words, especially about the likelihood of several rate hikes coming our way, were anything but soothing last week. Here's Powell during the press conference for last week's FOMC meeting, answering a question about whether raising interest rates would impact the labor economy. I think there's quite a bit of room to raise interest rates without threatening the labor market. This is by so many measures, a historically tight labor market, Uh, record levels of job openings, uh, of quits. Wages are moving up at the highest uh, pace they have in decades. Um, If you look at surveys um, of workers, they find jobs plentiful. Look at surveys of companies, they find workers scarce. And all of those readings are at levels, really, that we haven't seen in a long time, and in, in some cases, ever. Quite a bit of room to raise interest rates? Well, that opened the door to several rate hikes and set off the kind of volatility we haven't felt in a couple of years. So bundle up this week because hace frío. We'll keep the engines running a little hotter than usual on the Express this week, and we'll talk to you again a little further on down the line. (laughs) 